0: Hello and welcome everybody, this is Dr. Tully for History 327. Today we're going to be talking about the early civil rights movement. Today we're going to be talking about the early civil rights movement, uh, pretty much going from you know beginning of the civil rights movement to right up to uh, 1957 with the Little Rock Nine. Uh, this is one of the bigger themes for this class, is the movement of civil rights uh, post-World War II. And this is something which, I mean, of course, I go much more in depth in my African American history course, but something which we're, you know, we do need to talk about. You do need to get an understanding, definitely into a wider context, into a wider context. So go on over, get that PowerPoint, and uh, we'll get going. So the first question is, why now? Why now? Why is, why is the Civil Rights Movement going to happen now? What is it about post-World War II America that is just ripe for civil rights and for uh, people to really have a chance of feeling that they could gain some? Remember, slavery had ended over 100 years before, about 100 years prior in the 1860s. That's when the Civil War was. I mean, you had Reconstruction and Jim Crow. You, know, you have about 100 years of new, new oppression and, and squashing of rights for African Americans. So what made them think that eh, things might be different this time around? Or the first point is, number one, the economy was doing good. The economy was doing really good, actually. Um, that really can't be overstated. Uh, people were more inclined to, quote-unquote, give civil rights when things are going well. Uh, When things are going well economically, typically Americans, uh, usually white Americans, white middle and upper class Americans, are a bit more willing to quote-unquote give civil rights, uh, have more equality. Uh, Change typically doesn't happen in a time of crisis, uh, usually not uh, positive change. Uh, Generally in time of crisis, in time of economic downturn and hardship, people are more likely to grab on tighter to what they already have. And so we allow things for civil rights and things like voting and other things um, equality and access to uh, facilities was probably not going to happen in a time of warfare or a time when economically things were not that, um, not that strong. Now, likewise, with the economy doing well, this is across the board. I mean, even though they do lag behind their white contemporaries, wages and material standards for African Americans were similarly rising. Uh, as I said, they are not doing you know, one-to-one with their, Afri- with their white counterparts. But black workers are making more money. They're living in better housing, um, you know, running water, um, electricity, things like that are becoming much more common for African Americans, even the poor African Americans. And also, the, the, and having a lot of money in, in society in general, in the country in general, uh, it makes post-war liberalism seem more realistic. Uh, post-war liberalism, think of something like the Truman Doctrine, this idea that money can solve all of our problems. Uh, the idea that, you know, we can, if we just spend the money, we have the resources, we have the willpower, we have the brains, we can fix all of our problems if we just put our heads to it and spend the money to do it. We can solve things like poverty and um, inequality. It's very idealistic, but that's something that's really occurring, and it's really supported by the strong economy. I mean, believing that you can solve your problems and you have the money to do it, that's a pretty uh, strong pairing right there. Now, but as, as things are doing really well, you also have to, have to have a source of external tension, and that'd be the Cold War. This one also can't be overstated. The Cold War is really putting everybody on edge. You know, it's, it's kind of the best of times and the worst of times for the United States, because even though the United States is secure in its finances, there's still this existential threat of the Cold War. You know, the idea that if America were to ever make a misstep or a mistake, Russia would jump all over it. And Russian propaganda was very keen on highlighting the poor treatment of people of color within the United States. Uh, you know, when the United States is trying to influence these literal third world countries, third world meaning, you know, those who are not allied with the United States or with the Russians, who are the second world countries, uh, the US and its allies are considered first world countries. Basically, when they're trying to influence these countries and places like Africa and Asia to go with the United States, the Russians would counter with, like, Hey, people from Africa, look how horribly they treat their own African-Americans. You know, in the United States, African-Americans aren't considered citizens. They're subject to all sorts of discrimination and violence. What makes you think you're going to be treated any better if they treat their own citizens this way? This was used a lot all over the world as a reason not to trust the Americans. Uh, this is There's tons of Russian propaganda in these particularly African and Asian countries, also South American, basically when there's not white people as a reason not to trust the Americans. In addition, America feels like they have to look good on the world stage. Remember, the Cold War is not just about guns and ammunition, but also about hearts and mind. And the idea that the United States is getting bad PR, is getting a bad look because of this, is something they want to improve upon. Now, I will admit that's something that you're going to hear throughout the Civil Rights Movement, throughout the Civil Rights Movement, and actually kind of to this day. I would say... This predates the Civil Rights Movement, and it goes concurrently with the Civil Rights Movement, it's still around to this day, is an accusation that civil rights leaders might have some sort of communist ties. Uh, that is the very common refrain, uh, very much during this time period. Dr. King um, and other civil rights leaders often get called, uh, called out for being quote-unquote communists or communist sympathizers, or even communist infiltrators. Like basically people to uh, infiltrate American society and turn us communists You're going to hear that a lot. The idea that those uh, crusading for social causes are oftentimes considered communist, are labeled communist. This sort of accusation never really goes away. It's a very common one throughout US history. Now, why does this happen? Well, number one, you do have some legitimate former communists in the membership of some of these civil rights organizations. Not a ton, not a ton, not a majority. Not even a sizable minority, just some, but it's enough to give these accusations a little bit of credence, uh, give it a little bit of credibility that some civil rights leaders, not leaders, but some civil rights membership is uh, communist. One guy we're going to talk about in particular later on, Bayard Rustin, he is definitely a former communist, uh, and he's very high up, uh, particularly in Dr. King's organization, but the vast majority are not. Still, you do have some. Another is the legacy of the Jonesboro Boys. Uh, that is a case in Arkansas where several African-American youths are accused of raping two white girls on a train. Uh, They're later found innocent. Basically, there was no way this job could have been done, this crime, not job, this, this crime could have been committed by them. Still, um, when their original case came up, nobody would come to their defense. And so the American Communist Party came to their aid. They provided them some lawyers. You know, They, they said, maybe we can link this to a civil rights cause. This is another legacy. Uh, The Jonesboro case, though, was, gosh, that was like the teens or the 20s. It was very old by the time the civil rights comes around. Still, it's an accusation. But the main reason why this happens is to delegitimize opposition. Uh, Basically, by accusing somebody of being a communist, you delegitimize them. Basically, you kind of blank out their entire argument. You know, oh, you're just a damn dirty communist. I don't have to listen to you, that sort of thing. Uh, the third reason why it happens then is that mechanizations and organizations were already in place. Uh, there's a lot about the civil rights movement that is not brand new. I mean, honestly, a lot of the tactics of the civil rights movement are particularly new. Many of the organizations were not particularly new. Uh, for instance, the NAACP. The NAACP was started in the early 20th century, uh, the Niagara Movement by W.D. E. Du Bois and others. Uh, It does reach its height during this time period, but it's a much older organization. Uh, The NAACP, I believe, by the time we get to the 60s, had 10 in membership. It's a much larger membership, and it's very much an elite organization in this time period. Uh, The NAACP engages in what I call top-down leadership and top-down civil rights movements, uh, doing things like using the courts and class action cases. They have had a long series of... Success in the courtroom. We're going to talk about some of these court cases. I mean, of course, you know Brown v. Board. But there's other court cases that come before it where the NAACP has showed that its its system for combating racism, of going to like court cases in the Supreme Court, is the way that they think they're going to get societal change. Now, for ground-level organizations, uh, you have things like CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. That been, that had been, uh, been formed around World War II. Uh, it's also getting very involved in this uh, in this civil rightsy thing. Uh, the media, the most immediate predecessor to the civil rights movement is the Double V campaign. The Double V campaign was a World War II movement, um, basically trying to promote patriotism but also military service. The double Vs being victory overseas against communism, not communism, against fascism and Nazism and Hitler, and victory at home against racism. The Double V campaign had had a lot of successes. Uh, Giving African Americans to volunteer for military service but also ending some uh, discrimination within the military uh, particularly in terms of letting people become officers uh, at this time people of color were not allowed to be officers, even of all black battalions uh, most units were segregated that changes uh, in the Korean War under Truman basically, no, sorry, uh, Truman yes, Truman, Korean War, you have organized units uh, Eisenhower is one who completely desegregates the military um, so, you know, he's, he's an interesting guy. Uh, a. Philip Randolph, also, he's a labor union leader. He is a prime example of people who gets involved in the Double V campaign. And he's an elder statesman for this movement. And, and likewise, you have the awareness of media. Um, you have new media that is growing. Television is growing. Particularly television is very key for the civil rights movement. Also radio, newsreels, things like that. Uh, the press. There is a media that is aware of the civil rights issue and basically how to talk about it. And also you have the rest of the country somewhat interested in learning about. So what is the status for African Americans uh, prior to 1948? All right, prior to 1948, prior to the civil rights movement, what's going on? Well, by the mid-50s, <laughs> which I know is after 1948, but gonna me here. There are about 17 million African Americans within the United States, which is about 10% of the total population. Uh, the number of African Americans within the United States uh, varies from time to time. It's usually around 15 to 13% of the US population. Uh, despite the various great migrations, most African Americans are living in the South, where Jim Crow was very much in effect. <clears throat> and what you have in the South is a very segregated society where social interactions were very much scripted to follow certain norms. (laughs) Now, Jim Crow theoretically does not exist in the North, but you still have uh, basically compliance in neighborhoods and basically how interactions are supposed to be happening between African Americans and white people, basically uh, having the races be segregated, having African Americans give deference to white people, um, not have leadership roles, things like that lynching was not as popular as it was in its heyday. By the time we get to the 50s, there are not as many lynchings. Uh, in fact, one of the reasons why the Emmett Till case, which we'll talk about a little bit later, um, is such a big deal is because it is such a violent lynching at a time where there really wasn't that much. Uh, however, even though the lynching wasn't as common, the idea of having like a violent reaction or a violent response to breaking these social expectations, that was still very much expected. It might not be to like a lynching case, but if uh, if African American were to violate these social norms, uh, you know, cross the line for decorum, quote unquote, how the races were expected to act, they could respect uh, expect a, a violent response for that. Still, things were starting to change, and, and from the Democrats of all people. Uh, Prior to this time period, if an African American was allowed to vote, uh, generally in the North, they typically voted Republican. That was something that the Republicans had pretty much taken for granted since uh, the passage of the 15th Amendment. Basically, African Americans who could vote tended to vote Republican because the Democrats were the party of segregation and the party of the South. Now, it's pretty interesting that it's the Democrats who begin making some of the changes for civil rights. In 1948, the Democratic National Party staff platform stated that racial and religious minorities must have the same right to live, work, vote, and have equal protection under the law, same as all other citizens. That is new. That is new. Um, FDR was the first Democrat to really make some forays into appealing to black voters basically by saying hey black voters i know you vote republican but what have they done for you lately or ever or anything ever you know are are we having black elected officials have they really changed your status in life why don't you switch sides and try to work better for us so you already have in 48 of the democratic party trying to appeal towards african americans now, the Democratic president of that time period, Harry Truman, who, of course, we've talked about, uh, he desegregates the military, all right? It's a, it's a process, it's a process, it's not fully desegregated until Eisenhower, but Truman does desegregate the military, desegregates army bases, pretty much under the guise of um, saving money, also desegregates some of the armed forces, uh, other branches of the military are not as easy to do, for instance, the Marines are one of the last to desegregate uh, the Marines, for the longest time would not allow anybody but white people there. It does take a while, but then they start allowing African Americans in. Uh, this is not to say that the desegregation of the military didn't have issues. it most certainly had issues, but it was fairly straightforward can you know in contrast to the rest of society. you know the military is somewhat easy to desegregate. You pretty much say, all right cool, here's the rules for the military. Uh, we are d- under the direct purview of the u s government president's commander in chief. <coughs> He passes laws. Now, he doesn't pass laws, but you know he, he makes changes to policy. He says it. He enacts it. If you don't like it, you're kicked out of the military or you get court-martialed or whatever, that sort of thing. That's fairly straightforward, as opposed to the rest of society, which, even if you wanted to desegregate, doesn't have as direct of a mechanism to do that. Because... The president can do stuff for, you know, government agencies and particularly the military. But things like schools, things like most society, uh, that's more under the purview of Congress. That's more under the purview of Congress. And Congress is loaded with Southern Democrats and seniority who are not particularly inclined to do much for civil rights. They're not inclined to make a lot of action. You know, they see that the party... Uh, The National Party is making more overtures to civil rights. They understand that there's a sea change coming. However, they don't think it's something that they should be really, really, um, you know, aggressive about. They figure they want to take it very slow, or maybe they pretend it doesn't exist. So that's two branches of government that really can't do anything. Well, one... One wants to do something but can't. The other one doesn't want to. Can do something but chooses not to. So you have the third branch of government, the courts. The courts, the judicial system, is going to do its due diligence. This becomes the battleground for the early civil rights movement, in particular various court cases. If you go on, you got Brown v. Board. This is probably the most famous court case when it comes to uh, ending desegregation. But it doesn't come out of nowhere. All right, it doesn't come out of nowhere. Uh, the NAACP had been trying cases for years, uh, for, for literal years they've been trying. Uh, it had a legal department, all right? It had a legal department basically to try cases, uh, figure out the best court cases, figure out sympathetic courts. Uh, the guy who founded it was a guy by the name of Thurgood Marshall. If you see him right there, he's a dude in the middle. Thurgood Marshall right there. Uh, he later becomes our first black Supreme Court justice. Very, very important legal mind. Uh, He went to Howard Law School, was one of the sharpest legal minds in the world, period, regardless of race. He heads up this department for the NAACP, and he is really trying to find good test cases to show that racism is not only just stupid, but also expensive. It's discriminatory. They're basically trying trying to find that these discrimination clauses are arbitrary. They're causing the states more money. They're causing resources, that sort of thing. Uh, a pretty early big case involving uh, education in the 1950s was a case of Sweat versus Painter. Uh, Sweat versus Painter, fairly famous case. Uh, Herman, Heeman, not Herman, I always say Herman, his name is Heeman. Heeman Sweat is a black man. You see him right there, there's Heeman Sweat. Uh, he's a black man, he lives in Houston, he dreams of becoming a lawyer. He dreams of becoming a lawyer, and he wants to go to the best law school, the best public law school in all of Texas. That would be UT Law School. UT Law School and UT Austin, that's by far, I mean, still to this day, UT is one of the best public universities in the world, well, in the United States, very prestigious, and so he wants to go to UT Law School. Now, the president of UT of this time period, a man by the name of Painter, um, who's a white man, refuses to grant sweat admission because he's black, all right? Um... He's basically, Sweat, Sweat tries to apply to this law school. Painter says, no, you cannot go. And Painter says explicitly, it's because you're black. It's because you're black. So Sweat turns this case over to the NAACP. He sends it to the NAACP. Uh, Marshall and his team, they take it on. Um, and while they're preparing to make this case, while they're, you know, going through the court process, going through the appeals, uh, the University of Texas offers a solution. They try to offer a solution, which is a brand new, you know, just like ramshackle law school exclusively for African-Americans. They said, hey, we're going to try doing the separate but equal thing. You want to go to a law school. We just made this new law school just for African-Americans. It's separate, you know, so you can go to law school. Please stop this lawsuit. Um even racists don't like lawsuits because they take a lot of money and resources and time and energy. However, this new institution was inherently not equal. By being a separate institution for African Americans, uh, they argue that it is inherently not equal. In fact, this is the argument that Marshall uses to argue the case in front of the Supreme Court. He argues Sweat versus Painter in front of the Supreme Court. Um... Basically, he says that this new law institution was not equal. It might be separate from white people, but it's not equal because the facilities aren't as good. The library holdings aren't as good. Uh, if you know anything about law school and legal libraries, that's a big deal. Um, you know, having, especially in a time when, before the internet, like having access to the best law books and case, and te- and case law is huge for anything dealing with law school. Likewise, the new professors, they might not be as prestigious or not have as good of a record or not have the clout of some of the people over at the uh, white UT Law School. Uh, I mentioned the prestige. Now, UT is a very prestigious school. This new school is not going to have the prestige. Uh, generally, new schools don't have prestige. Um, it's it's kind of hard for them to get prestige. And the other thing that, that uh, Marshall argues is that it's not offering a chance to rub elbows and make personal connections with a larger legal community. Uh, the legal community is huge in law circles. Like law school, it's not just about the stuff you learn; it's about the relationships you build. Your classmates, your professors, you know who you might be interning for. Um, you know where you might be a clerk or something. Uh, this is huge, particularly in law in the law world. Like the bar for each state is supposed to like a little fraternity, where basically you you know all the members. You know who you know. It's it's more important than the information, and basically. Uh, Marshall argues that Sweat is being denied all of these things. Sweat is d- being denied a chance. You know, Even though we have this brand new facility, which is not that great a facility, it's not the same as attending UT Law School. You just can't make up a, um, a brand new school for African Americans and claim that it is equal, even though it is separate. And this actually worked. Uh, the Supreme Court agrees with, with uh, Marshall unanimously. Uh, the court says that Texas law violated the 14th Amendment, uh, the Equal Protection Law... By the way, the 14th Amendment... Uh, I, I say this is not a legal... This is not legal, Stu saying. Uh, sorry, legal, Dr. Tully saying. This is just uh, anecdotally. The 14th Amendment is a, a mystical and magical amendment that can make it believe pretty much whatever you want under parts of it, basically, uh, rights of citizenship. So, Plessy was being challenged, but the court is still upholding separate but equal as a standard. Basically, it argued that uh, the, the case... Sorry, the, the, the law that Texas had is in violation. You know, these uh you know you're you're violating the 14th Amendment by having a separate law school because of this inequity. Now, if there's a way that you could possibly eliminate the inequity, you could have some sort of separateness. So, yes, Plessy v. Ferguson, separate but equal is being challenged. That being said, it's it's starting to show a little bit of daylight that maybe we could challenge it a bit more. And that's where Brown gets into play. If you go over one slide, you're gonna see Oliver Brown and Linda Brown. Now, the plaintiff is 8-year-old Linda Brown. She is not able to attend the white school closest to her in Topeka, Kansas. All right? Um, this, this white school was a couple blocks away from her. She could have very easily walked to it. However, they were forced her to go to a black school, which was a very long bus ride away. It took, like, you know, an hour or so for her to get there by bus. And it basically really goes in through her father. All right, Her father is the one who gets really involved. Um, there is a huge element of the early civil rights movement is this idea of respectability. This idea that basically African Americans involved in civil rights want to demonstrate to white America that they are inherently respectable, that they are not communist, that basically if you're against them, the only reason you could be possibly against them is because of their race and you're a racist. You know, they don't allow any other reason. And so that's why this test case is so key. There were plenty other cases. In fact, this becomes a class action case. However, Lydia Brown is highlighted because she is such an easy case. You know, it's such an easy case because it is a very blatant, hey, there's a good white, there's a white school right next to her, and the black school is about like an hour away or something. Likewise, her father. Her father was a welder, but he was also a minister. He was also a minister, and he made an excellent face for the case, all right? And you're going to see this in the early civil rights movement. Like, all of them are preachers because that's a very respectable job, one that is seen to be in the community, one that is seen not to be communist because they are Christian. And basically, her dad is the one who really helped spearhead this. The family joins in a class action suit with 12 other families. This gets linked up into other class action suits mm-hmm. until it becomes a giant case, Brown v. Board. So basically, Brown, Oliver Brown, speaking on behalf of Lydia Brown, because she's eight years old, she actually just passed away, um, becomes Brown v. Board of Topeka, Kansas. Board of Education, Topeka, Kansas. Uh, basically, Marshall makes a, another argument in front of the Supreme Court in 1954. He doesn't make the sweat argument, all right? He does a different argument. Um, unlike sweat, the, the schools in Kansas were not necessarily inferior in terms of the facilities. Uh, Kansas is unique in that, at this time period, Topeka, you actually have fairly similar facilities between black and white students. That was not the case in most other places in the South. Instead, however, Marshall argues that separating the races is against the Constitution. He he argues that separating the races, if you go over one slide, you're gonna see Marshall with Earl Warren, who we're gonna talk about in just a second. Um, He argues that separating the races is against the Constitution, and that by separating the races, it is inherently an inferior education and can therefore not be equal. It's a different argument than Sweat versus Painter, which basically is saying, hey, you could make these equal, but it's all the intangibles. Uh, Now he's arguing that just the act of separating black and white students makes it inferior, well, unequal. And the new chief justice, if you see that picture, there's Earl Warren. Earl Warren had been the very conservative governor of California. In fact, he had been appointed by Eisenhower to not rock the boat with the Supreme Court. And this is kind of interesting because Earl Warren agrees. Earl Warren agrees with Thurgood Marshall, even though he's more conservative, and basically, he states in his, um, in his opinion, he writes a majority opinion, he states that in the field of public education, separate but equal has no place. He literally states that. So, everything seems great. This is a huge victory for the NAACP. The Supreme Court has just said we need to desegregate the schools. Now, hold on to your hats. There's two major problems. This is where the story probably ended for you whenever you heard about it in high school, maybe in middle school, maybe in your, you know, February Black History Month program. You heard Brown v. Board of Education. Hooray! You know, segregation is over. Not quite. First of all, changing the school system would take a lot of time and money. And the original court case doesn't say anything about when it should be done and how it should be done. In the second Brown decision, which comes a year later in 1955, Brown v. Board 2, the Supreme Court says that school desegregation should occur at, quote, all deliberate speed, which is an aggravating turn of phrase. It's a very indefinite indefinite turn of phrase. This is often seen as a cop-out, all right, because the South would basically drag its feet at any given moment to try to prove that it's going with all deliberate speed, you know. If um, you know, you know, this might be a bit topical. Uh, I don't know when you're listening to this, but when I'm as I'm recording it, uh, we've just gone through Hurricane Ida. In fact, we've just gone through Hurricane Ida, and uh, right now I'm kind of fighting with my internet company uh, and my cable company to basically be like, when is service coming back? When is service coming back? You know, I, I need my internet. I would like to have cable back. And every time I call their 1-800 number and and I talk to a person, they tell me that they're working on it and they're going to get to me as soon as they can. When is as soon as they can? It's a very indefinite time period. And you get very frustrating because, you know, I want my cable and I want my Internet back. And you can imagine how frustrating this is for the civil rights leaders who they've gotten this great victory. They've been told, hey, we can have schools desegregated. But then they're also told we have no time frame. Also, it showed that the Supreme Court really didn't have a way to enforce this. Didn't really have a way to enforce this all that much. Didn't really have a way to enforce that all that much. <laughs> and the other major problem is that this only applies to schools. And public schools at that. Um, although schools were a very important part of the Jim Crow segregation system, it was far from the only thing keeping black and white people apart. And in fact, in the rural Deep South, there were simply no black schools, Period. Like if we're talking about the Mississippi Delta and things like that, where you have a very large African-American population, they're so rural that they actually have no black schools, period. So how do you desegregate something that doesn't exist? And while all this is going on, while all this, while the country is wrestling with this issue about what to do with school desegregation, is this overreach by the federal government interfering with the affairs in the South? That's when the Emmett Till case happens. And I'm going to give you a trigger warning about Emmett Till. There will be a slide that I'm going to show you that is graphic. That is graphic. It's from the time period. But in August of 1955, just a few months after Brown v. Board 2 is announced, uh, little 14-year-old Emmett Till, little, he's a teenager, 14-year-old Emmett Till, he comes down from Chicago to visit his relatives near Monet, Mississippi. It's pronounced Monet. It's spelled money. It's pronounced Monet. It's Mississippi, y'all. I can't say it one way or the other, but it's pronounced Monet in the Delta, Northwest Mississippi. Uh, very high African American population. Like many, many people from uh, from Chicago, uh, it's he and his mom. His dad was kind of out of the picture this time period. He and his mom. His mom's originally from Mississippi. He, uh, you know, she's coming back to visit her parents, visit her family. And I do need to mention once again that Brownie Board 2 was announced in May, and he's coming down to in August of 55. So the South is on age. This is not the reason why Till is murdered, explicitly. However, the South is afraid of, quote-unquote, outside invaders, and Till seems to kind of fit into this mold. So if you see right there, there's little Emmett Till. Little, I keep saying little. He's, he's short for his age. He's 14, so young man, whatever. Uh, the details are a bit fuzzy. The details are a bit fuzzy. Um, but however he is talking a big game with his cousins right his cousins are from mississippi uh he is from chicago he talks about how race relations are different in Mississippi, in chicago talks about how he's you know he's cool with with white people in chicago he can hang out with white people which might be him talking up a little bit too much talks about going on dates with white girls supposedly which once again he's probably talking it up a little bit um Chicago definitely has very bad race issues in this time period. Um, perhaps Emmett Till did know some white people. He might have had some white friends. Maybe even dated a white girl. But uh, more than likely, he was. I mean, once again, he's fourteen. I've been fourteen. I've played up stuff whenever I was fourteen. It happens. But basically, he he's talking up about with his cousins about how he's you know how he's yeah, yeah things are different in Chicago. I'm I'm a. I'm a you know urbane worldly man you know I I I'm I'm cooler than whatever, and so they're at a store they're at a, they're at a little general store in Monet Mississippi, and he has an interaction or he may not have an interaction uh, it changes with the storekeeper's daughter a uh, wife wife not daughter not daughter wife uh, the storekeeper's wife she's a young white woman in her early twenties uh, I believe she only recently passed away and she did say that that boy did nothing to basically warrant what happened to him. Now, she didn't say whether or not he did interact with her. Very fuzzy. What we do know is he whistled at one point, and he might have talked to her in a way that was, I don't want to say flirtatious, but not, he was not giving her much deference. Uh, You know, I wasn't there. Um, She has been unstable about this. Uh, His relatives who were there didn't really say too much about this. Look, it doesn't really matter what he did or didn't say. Uh, what what does matter is that he did nothing. He basically talked he talked with somebody. The absolute worst thing he might have done was maybe been a little flirtatious. May and I don't think he was that flirtatious. But maybe he was like talked about a big game with his cousins, and he was like, oh, it's time for me to show it, that sort of thing. He might have whistled, he might not. I've heard things come out lately, like he supposedly had a stutter, and his mother told him to like calm himself down, whistle first. They'll help you get your breathing right, you'll be less likely to stutter. I'm not sure, but what we do know is that he has an interaction with this woman and then it's enough to violate the norms of the time. Later that night, uh, basically her husband and some other white men come to the house where he's staying at. Uh, Basically, they take him out, they torture him, they beat him, and ultimately they kill him. And his mother, make sure, if you go over one slide, you will see, you will see... The picture of his open casket his mom makes sure that this is an open casket uh, she wants she wants the world to know that basically this is what racism is doing to my son, this is what the south is like this is published all over the negro press uh, sorry, all over the black press, they call it the negro press of the time uh, yeah the, the predecessors of things like Jet and Ab- Ebony um, it's called the negro digest in this time period uh, the Chicago Defender, Pittsburgh Courier pretty much any black newspaper of note New Amsterdam Times. They start publishing this photograph. It's a shocking photograph because it seems like a relic of another time. You know, uh, people aren't hearing that much about lynchings in 1955. I mean, there are. I think that's one of the reasons why this is such a big deal is because people think, oh my gosh, this thing doesn't really happen anymore. And also, there's a fear of the South because Emmett Till. He's he's a. He's not a Southern black. Okay. He, he's viewed as dangerous because he's not a Southern African American who, quote-unquote, knows their role. It's, a, it's an outsider who might be trying to agitate things. That's one thing you're going to see throughout the Civil Rights Movement in the South, is this fear the, by the white Southerners of outside agitators. There's a fear of this outside influence. Now, now, tears, now, Till's murder, and also there's a lack of justice, because you can see also uh, the, the murderers are freed. Alright, basically during this case, uh, basically the the people accused, the the woman's husband and some others, they basically argue that, hey, nobody saw it, nobody can do it, you know, whatever. And then the day after that they're acquitted, they give an interview with a magazine that pretty much says, that doesn't even pretty much says, it says, yeah, we killed him and here's how we did it. And because of the rules of double jeopardy in this time period, they're allowed to pretty much parade around as free as they get. And so all of a sudden, Emmett Till's murder really gives a sense of urgency. Real sense of urgency to the Civil Rights Movement, and a real sense that we need to do something, and we need to do something big. Now, it's, it's only... <laughs> I don't want to say it's only natural, but fairly quickly, about five months after Emmett Till's murder, a new focal point comes into view, the segregated bus system of Montgomery, Alabama. If you go over one slide, you'll hear about Rosa Parks. Now, this is not too unusual in the sense that Montgomery has a very segregated bus system. In fact, pretty much all southern cities have buses, and pretty much all of them are segregated. Uh, Most southern cities have buses. A large part of their buses were black folks because they're less likely to have cars during this time period. And most routes actually go between black and white parts of town for domestic workers. Um, Black women make up a huge percentage of the people who ride the bus bus. But in most southern cities, it's about ninety percent of the people who ride the bus are African Americans. They make up a bulk of their consumer base. So even though black riders make up a bulk of the consumer base of these southern bus systems, they're still so segregated with uh, with white people getting preferential treatment. White people are allowed to sit on the front of the bus. White people are uh, they're, they're treated better in general. So the way that the system works, because you have so many more black riders than white riders, is that basically if there are not any white riders in the white section, a black person could kind of scoot, start scooting forward uh, because there are just way more black people on the bus. <laughs> However, if a white person were to come, they, they're, you know, they are asked to be sent back. Now Rosa Parks herself, as, as you see, uh, there she is being arrested. Uh, if you don't know too much about Rosa Parks before this, she's a badass. Uh, she, is a ver- she is a verified badass. Uh, she's in her mid-40s in this time. One of the reasons why she get, really gets chosen for this is because of her age. She's married. She's a seamstress. Um, she's actually a high school graduate. She's a high school graduate at a time where most black girls don't get the chance to go to high school, let alone graduate. Uh, even Something even more remarkable about her, she is registered to vote. like In a time in the South where African-American women well, African Americans in general, and particularly women, should not be allowed to vote, not should but were not allowed to vote. Like, it's supposedly impossible within the Southern system to get a, a, a black person to be able to vote because they have to go to register Registrar Voters, and they have all these, like, wackadoodle laws and fees and literacy tests and junk like that. She had somehow figured it out. Like, she had figured it out. She had gotten registered to vote pretty much by herself. So it's very little surprise that she joins the NAACP And she attends the Highlander School for a session about protest uh, a year or two beforehand. Um, A lot about what Rosa Parks does is is kind of in that gray area between is it pre-planned, is it not pre-planned, that sort of thing. Because transportation was not a very unusual issue for civil rights. For civil rights, transportation come up quite a bit. If you go over one slide... One of the predecessors to this is the Baton Rouge Bus Boycott. The Baton Rouge Bus Boycott happens in 1953 uh, for similar reasons as the Montgomery Bus Boycott, Um, black riders being treated poorly, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, It only lasts for a couple days. The Montgomery Bus Boycott lasts for over a year. The Baton Rouge Bus Boycott is only for a couple days. But it has a lot of the infrastructure that was used. In fact, before they do the, uh, the Montgomery Bus Boycott, uh, Dr. King and, and um, Edie Nixon who are two of the heads of the boycott they, they go to Baton Rouge and they ask the people in Baton Rouge they ask the leadership in Baton Rouge, hey how'd you do it uh, basically how do you get um, start up carpools, for people who do own cars getting in contact with the cab companies okay, I had to stop because my phone rang for the first time since the storm that means our phones had come back <laughs> true story, I'm not making this up I was all excited because I got a call. I was like, oh, my God, the phones are working again. And it was a it was a robocall about my car's warranty expiring. So, of course, that's the first thing that comes through after the storm. Anyway, yeah, they, they go to Baton Rouge. Um, cab companies are also somebody very important to talk to whenever these bus boycotts because they can make some money, too. You know, uh, the cab companies and the bus companies are kind of in competition. Cabs are more expensive, but they they basically they could see about you know negotiating for cheaper rates if we can guarantee you more uh, more customers that sort of thing so that's some of the infrastructure that's later used for Montgomery also earlier in 1955 all right another thing another wrinkle to the rose park story is earlier 1955 in Montgomery um, another woman was arrested for doing something very similar to rose park she was a young lady african american who was arrested for sitting in the white section? It comes out later that she's actually pregnant and not married, and so the NWCP does not touch her. They don't take that case because they think it's going to bring up moral issues and make the you know make the movement not look good. Remember, the NWCP is all about you know this idea of respectability. If you're against us, the only reason you'd be against us is because of our race an unwed teenage mother in this time period would be viewed as a moral failing and basically they did not want to open themselves up to that so in December of 1955 in December of 1955 Rosa Parks uh, if you go over one slide uh, of her own fruition but it wouldn't surprise me if E.D. Nixon who was head of the NAACP in Montgomery made a suggestion to her considering how fast this all came together um Rosa Parks was a secretary for the NAACP. She was definitely like in the room where they're talking about doing a bus boycott at Montgomery. Look, I'm not saying she's a plant. I'm just, I'm not even saying anything about her. She's a great woman. I'm just saying there's enough things out there that maybe it wasn't completely spur of the moment, considering how quickly the whole mechanization came into place uh, for once they had, once she got arrested for going right into the bus boycott. Um, Nixon is he. Nixon is of an older generation. He's an older generation. He's not the best public speaker. <clears throat> he wants a very good public spokesperson to get involved with it. So he goes goes with a young guy. Go over one slide. You know him. You take you have his day off for a holiday. Uh, you definitely heard about him, Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, he becomes a spokesperson for many reasons. Uh, number one, he's young. He's a minister. He's married, good-looking, very good speaker. Uh, he'd only been town for two years. He'd only been a preacher in Montgomery for about two years in this time period. Uh, he's about 26 or so when this happens. Uh, he, he's a young man. He was a little too young to fight in World War II. He was born in 1929. He's a young man, a uh, young family man. He also comes from preaching royalty. That's probably something you haven't really heard about before. If you go over one slide, uh, Daddy King, like Dr. Martin Luther King the first. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Sr. Uh, is a very, very, very important preacher within the African-American community. He's a big-time preacher in Atlanta, uh, very a lot of clout. You can see there's Kings 1 through 3. Um, his son's still around, Dr. Martin Luther King the th- Well, sorry, he's not a doctor, but Martin Luther King III, he's still around. You'll, you'll see him on TV from time to time. But his dad is a big-time preacher, very important, a lot of clout, Um, his dad's kind of the reason why King gets some of the positions he does so quickly. Uh, This is not to say that King doesn't have his own talent. He does. King King is amazing uh, once they give him the chance to speak and do things like that. But one of the reasons why he shoots up so quickly in the civil rights world, particularly on the national stage, within the community itself, is because of his dad. His dad has a lot of clout. Now, why he sustains it and why he becomes a national figure is because of his speaking. Um, He's really good on TV. Like, this is going to sound weird, but... The movement learns very quickly that King is awesome on on TV. He gives a very respectable face, a very preacher face to it all. Did I mention respectable? I need to mention respectable like 20 more times. Absolutely. That is what King is all about. He is the king of respectability, king of speaking, very clear. And this boycott goes on a lot longer than anybody imagines. They're thinking it's going to be like the Baton Rouge bus boycott, which is, you know, it's a couple days. They think maybe it might go on for a week or two, possibly a month. It goes on for about a year. It goes on for about a year. And he does a very good job. What King does, he does a good job of linking this with the American tradition of protest, of protest for rights. He links it to other protest movements. He's basically saying, we're trying to be good Americans, too. Uh, he is very keen on this idea of respectability, this idea that basically you must be as respectable as humanly possible. You must you know, show up in your Sunday best. That's something you probably have noticed if you ever watch civil rights movement stuff. Whenever you watch some of these videos uh, that I have for you on, the, um, on Moodle uh, about basically these protests, How they're in their Sunday best, how they're wearing, you know, coats and ties and and dresses, you know, neat and clean every day. That is on purpose. They don't normally dress that way. People in the 60s, you you might think from Leave It to Beaver or something, people dress like that all the time. They didn't necessarily. Uh, They are doing that here, though, because King's like, look, if they could say you look ratty or nasty or you look poor, they could say that's why they're against you and not because that you're African American. And so they're very mindful of being respectful. He tells them, like, look, if, if the police are doing horrible things to you and you throw a punch, well, guess what? The cameras are only going to see the punch. He's mindful of the television. He's mindful of the television. He's like, if one of you does something bad, not bad, if one of you strikes out in violence, it's going to get, look bad on all of us. He, he's, the, he's the king of, of nonviolent protests, kind of going off that Gandhi model. Uh, basically, like if you're not violent, if you, basically if you just passive nonviolent protests, The people who go against you, if they are violent, they're going to look worse. It looks like they have the moral inferiority. Now, this boycott actually makes it all the way to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court decides in November of 1956, so about 11 months, almost a year after the boycott began, that segregation violates, surprise, surprise, that magical, mystical 14th Amendment. And basically, this this should be in the end of the boycott, but it's not for a hilarious reason, because the boycott goes on yet another month, even though the Supreme Court says the law is unconstitutional, since the city of Montgomery and kind of a final way to like kind of stick it to King, fines him eighty-five dollars for not having a permit. They're like, fine. Look, we're we're, we're desegregating the buses. Your protest worked. However, you didn't have a payment. You owe us eighty-five dollars. He had the money. Like it would have been no thing. It would have been no thing to get the money. Still, he's like, nope. It's it's you know it's 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 the it's it's the you know it's the moral of the thing. It's the spirit of the thing. I'm not going for it. So even though the Supreme Court had ruled against it, and theoretically the Montgomery bus system had been desegregated, he kept it going until the city waived the fine. And this seems to be a tactic going forward. This very respectful protest. This very you know we're going to be passive, not passive, but nonviolent. Not passive, but nonviolent. This type of protest seems to be pretty effective and seems to be a good tactic for going forward. So in the, in the midst of this, in the midst of all this, Little Rock happens. Now, Little Rock you might be familiar with, Little Rock 9, uh, Central High School, Little Rock, Arkansas. Let me, you know, once again, I'm going to give you a little bit more context behind it. Now, in response to the Brown decision, Brown 2, Brown 1, Brown 2, but particularly Brown 2, where we're talks about that all-deliberate speed thing, the South has been using every possible tactic to delay immigration. In early 1956, actually, while the Montgomery Bus Boycott is still going on, about a hundred members of Congress signed what's called the Southern Manifesto, which chastises the Supreme Court for overreach. Pretty much every Southern Congressperson uh, doesn't so, uh, sorry signs it. The only two who don't are um, Al Gore Sr. and uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson. But basically, this is pretty much every Southern politician, every congressman, every senator from the South chastises the Supreme Court for overreach. Basically say the Supreme Court is basically exasperating race relations in the South. They are messing everything up. Uh, in fact, let me give you a quote from it. Qu- quote basically talking about the Supreme Court. It is destroying the amicable relations between the white and Negro races that have been created through 90 years of patient effort by the good people of both races. It has planted hatred and suspicion where there has been heretofore friendship and understanding. Now I'm going to let that marinate a bit. To basically saying that, hey, for 90 years since the supreme, sorry, since the Civil War, everything's been hunky dory in the South. Everything's been happy. You know, there's been friendship and understanding, and now the Supreme Court is the one bringing in hatred and 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 suspicion very much white people should this, this, and I think even they knew that they're full of baloney. Um, but it reflects the view of many, many white Southerners that basically the feds leave the South alone. Basically, they feel that the feds have no business being in the South, states right, all that other BS. And so they feel that the South should be left alone. Now, this manifests in the South in many different ways. Uh, a lot of them have what's called white citizens' councils. If you go over one slide, you'll see uh, basically, an advertisement from one of these white citizens councils. Actually, it's actually a, a mailer. Well, it's in a, it's in a paper, but it's a it's a, pa- a picture of a mailer. Basically, ask yourself this important question: What have I personally done to maintain segregation? If the end disturbs you, probe deeper and decide what you're willing to do to preserve racial harmony in Selma and Dallas, country, in, uh, Dallas County. This idea being. You know, hey, we're going to preserve segregation. We're going to make everything better in the South. It's an unofficial way of doing it. You know, the white citizenship councils, these are not government bodies. These are quote unquote concerned citizens. They're trying to unofficially keep segregation. Remember, it's easy for something like a public school. Well, okay, it's not really because they're finding out ways to subvert it. But like for something like uh, the military, it's easy to mandate that. But for other things, for, for people's houses, for their places of worship, for their businesses, for their restaurants, it's a lot more complicated. Uh, it's not as cut and dry. So all sorts of different organizations start coming up during this time period to unofficially preserve segregation. Uh, a big one is dinner clubs. Dinner clubs is a big one. Uh, restaurants theoretically need to allow pretty much anybody in there, you know, except for obvious stuff, you know, no shirt, no shoes, no service. But uh, now they're saying, hey, these these are no longer restaurants. They're private clubs. And a private club can discern who it wants and not to want to be its members. And so many restaurants become supper clubs. Or you become like a member of the restaurant club of a particular city, which allows you access to various restaurants. The only criterion is pretty much being white and not poor. <laughs> uh, the one I'm most familiar with is from my parents. They They were, well... Actually, I think my dad's parents were members of this, uh, of a supper club in Shreveport, Louisiana, um, a restaurant that my parents liked to go to. Uh, it has since actually no longer exists, but for, his, for my lifetime, it was always desegregated. But apparently there was a restaurant called Merle's. It was like a hamburger stand, and apparently Mr. Merle was a very racist individual who only allowed white people in there but made pretty good hamburgers. But, yes, he was racist. I'm not trying to defend racism in any stretch. But basically, the only way you could get into murals for the longest time was even though it was like a greasy spoon diner, you had to be a member of the Supper Club. Basically, this, this band of restaurants throughout Shreveport. One you're probably much more familiar with is the Country Club. Uh, the Country Club, they say idea that there are like, you know, swimming pools and tennis courts and golf courses um, only for members. Before this time, most cities have those. You have municipal golf courses, Uh, municipal pools, things like that. However, once they start becoming desegregated, people don't like that. Like, well, if you make a separate club, you can become a member of it, and then we can say who can and can't participate. Uh, Same thing with homeowners associations. Most country clubs have an affiliated neighborhood. So basically, you join the country club, you have to be uh, supported by membership, by other members, and uh, some of these are still rather lily-white to this day. Um... I grew up in Baton Rouge, and there's two country clubs in Baton Rouge. The Country Club of Baton Rouge is the Country Club of Louisiana. And whenever I was a kid, uh, the Country Club of Louisiana had a couple African-American members Uh, Master P most famously moved in there whenever I was in middle school I remember going to a birthday party at a friend's house there and uh, it wasn't at Master P's house Uh, my friend was not Little Romeo that would be hilarious if that was the case it would probably explain a lot about my uh, (laughs) choice and vocation to research however it was next door to Master P's house and I remember being able to look in he had like a full size NBA basketball court in his backyard I want to say Little Romeo was at the birthday party Master P was not at that particular birthday party but I remember seeing Master P buying milk and stuff uh, but the other country club, the country club of Baton Rouge, was all white. And I wanna say until relatively recently it was still like all white in its membership. Now, once again, you know, there's the, you know, they, they could say, oh my goodness, I wasn't racist in doing this. I'm just going to try to, you know, keep the quote-unquote good people, keep out the riff-raff. That sort of thing. So if you go one more slide, you'll see another picture of these citizens' councils from the time period, talking about things like states' rights and racial integrity. Uh, you notice the Confederate flag. Uh, the Confederate flag starts coming back as a symbol of not just the Confederacy, but the South and also segregation. Uh, for the longest time, like immediately after the Civil War, if you saw a Confederate battle flag, it was to denote the Confederacy, like that four-year failed rebellion, like You might see it at a cemetery to denote a Confederate grave. But, you know, starting in the 1890s and really once you get into the 1920s and really expand upon in the 1950s, the Confederate flag becomes a symbol of just racial solidarity, whiteness, uh, the South in general. It takes on more dimensions than just a, a four-year failed rebellion. So while all these are coming up, in Little Rock, go over one slide, you're going to see Orville Fabus. Wonderful names we don't get anymore, Fabus. Basically, in 1957, which was the year before the gubernatorial election, Governor Fabus decides to make a little bit of a show of it. Uh, He brings in the Arkansas National Guard to the campus of Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. Central High School was the premier high school in Little Rock. Uh, maybe your 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 town had that growing up. if you come from a larger city, um, there's often the flagship public school. you know basically that's that's the the quote unquote good high school, you know, maybe it's a magnet program or something. And basically, he brings in the National guard to guard against violence from, quote, the black parents who might want to enroll their children. He says basically maybe some black ch- parents want to enroll their children. There is this insinuation that, um, the civil rights protesters—they're communists. They're outsiders. They're trying to rile up the otherwise peaceful black population. Uh, kind of continue that Emmett Till line and the line that was said during the, in the Southern Manifesto of like, "Oh no, no, no! African Americans are happy. It's only when outside agitators come in they ruin everything. And basically, they're going to make them do things that makes them not as otherwise peaceful." Now, nine students who ever one slide—they do try to enroll. You're going to see the pictures of the Little Rock nine plus one friend. All right, plus one uh, older friend they have with them. You see her right there, uh, back row, second to the right. So, um, yes, I know there are ten people pictured, but it's a Little Rock nine plus one friend of theirs. Uh, they do try to enroll, and they are all "quote unquote" the best students. Once the idea—the idea of respectability—comes in. Every single one of these students that tries to enroll has a 4.0. They all have married parents. All their fathers have jobs. Uh, Many of them, their fathers were in the military and had honorable discharges. Uh, They own their own home. They're members of churches. All these things for respectability. Remember, they're really pushing this line that if you're against us, the only reason is is because we're African-American. They're trying to get rid of any other way that somebody could oppose them. And likewise, uh, the Little Rock Nine were accompanied by a group of integrated ministers. You have black and white ministers, black and white ministers, who have come together to basically say, hey, this is something that needs to happen. So they're really trying to get rid of this idea of outsiders. They're trying to get people from the town, from Little Rock, white ministers in Little Rock who might be willing to go along with this. So they go to the door of Little Rock High School, sorry, of Central High School in Little Rock, When they make it to the door, the door is locked. The door is locked, and the National Guardsmen make them go home. The National Guardsmen come, they make them go home, and all of this happens in front of television cameras, which, ironically, famous thought is good for him at first. At first, famous is like, this is great for me. I can now show the world this is how we do it here in Little Rock. This is how we do it here in Arkansas. We're strong on racial issues. We're not letting people, you know, we're not letting uh, people railroad us. We're going to show the people of Little Rock that we are standing up for the South. He doesn't think that this is going to make it bad or have backlash. He doesn't expect the rest of the country to really care about this. He expects the news cameras that come to be local news cameras, and they're going to show that throughout Arkansas. It's going to help its re-election campaign. He doesn't think the rest of the country is going to care too much about this because it's very small potatoes. It's only a handful of students in Little Rock. However... This makes it to the national news, and then Eisenhower has to get involved. Now, Eisenhower is a very, very interesting cat. All right? He's an interesting cat. He's very hard to pin down when it comes to racial issues. He's kind of moderate, and it can be very uh, frustrating to understand him, uh, particularly if you're somebody very keen on civil rights. He can be very frustrating because he supports equity for African Americans. Uh, he is one who's okay with, de, uh, with desegregation of the military. He helps further desegregate the military that Truman does. Likewise, he desegregates Washington, D.C. He says there's no sense for Washington, D.C. to be segregated. We're just wasting money. He kind of comes at it from the financial angle, saying that basically separate but equal is causing us to build twice the stuff. We don't need it. But he also understands that there's going to be backlash, in his private moments, he, he tells his advisors that, yes, I understand that I'm in favor of integration and equality for African Americans, but he also says, I realize if I push too hard, there's going to be backlash against African Americans against me, the white people. He's like, you know, they, they're understandable. when They want their kids to, quote unquote, have good educations. They don't want their students going, children being students like to African Americans, which... Yes, sounds horrible for nowadays, but for the time period was viewed as something that was quote-unquote understandable. The main thing you need to realize about Eisenhower is that he realizes there's going to be a backlash. Still, he is the president, and he has sworn oath to uphold the Constitution. And when the Supreme Court has decreed, hey, this is what the Constitution says about the matter, he's like, look, I'm the president, I don't decide the laws, I don't decide they're constitutional or not, uh, Congress passes the laws, I enforce them, that's how it works. Okay, and so basically he's like, look, we can't go against what the federal government says. You can't just decide I'm going to ignore something from the federal government. You know, we had a civil war about that. Uh, we should definitely really, you know, obey what the federal government has to say. You're not going to defy my authority. Now this kind of plays into Fabus's hand at first. Fabus basically is like, look, he tells the Arkansas voters, "Look, your values are under attack by, a, by quote unquote, "uppity Negroes and a fascist federal government." He says, basically, "Look, the federal government is fascist. They're going against us. They don't care about your individual rights." This actually plays into Fabius's hand at first. This riles Southerners up even further. First part, Eisenhower does try to tone things down. Uh, he hopes that moderates in the South can talk some uh, sense into Fabius. He's like, look, I'm not trying to be really upfront about this. He understands there's going to be a backlash. Yet Fabius never stands down. So Eisenhower takes a symbolic step. If you go over one side, you'll see a symbolic step. He's like, all right, Fabius calls in the Arkansas National Guard. Okay, cool. I'm going one step further. I'm going to order members of, like, the Army to integrate black students. Basically, to integrate the high school by, not even force, but by military escort. And by justifying this action, Eisenhower is talking directly about the Cold War. That's something that Eisenhower talks about. It's like, look, um, Russia is making fun of us. You know, we're we're acting like this, and we're looking bad in front of the eyes of the world. You know, we're talking about liberty and freedom, and yet we're not doing it. And so, basically, this integrates uh, Central High School in Arkansas. There's actually very limited incident after the initial integration because mainly the parents who had a big problem with uh, students attending, you know, black and white students attending together, had already pulled their kids out. So pretty much all that was left was white students who didn't really care or were okay with it. Um, Apparently during the first day, um, some of the black students, some of the black male students were asked over to eat lunch with some of the white male students, and they chilled and they realized pretty quick we're just high schoolers and, you know, we have a lot in common. Uh, still, it was uh, very much. It helps Fabius in the short term. If you go over one slide, you will see basically there he is holding up his his newspaper that basically the Feds are forcing integration. Oh my gosh, I'm going to be your one you know defender against Arkansas values. Wins re-election very easily, seen as a person who stands up against the corruption of the federal government for the sake of Arkansas. Likewise, uh, Arkansas's legislature goes a step further. Uh, by closing all public schools. After that year, they closed all public schools in the state of Arkansas, which makes Eisenhower's victory um, very limited. Now, in spite of all this, more backlash is occurring. Uh, A lot of backlash starts happening. Backlash you may not be familiar with. If you go over one slide, blockbusting starts happening. Uh, blockbusting is something you've probably never heard about, but it is fascinating. One of the things I'm going to have you read, it's probably going to be the best thing you read all semester in terms of getting an idea about the mindset of somebody who's making money off of segregation, who's making money off of people's racial fears. It's called Defessions of a Blockbuster. It it came out in the Saturday Evening Post. You're you're going to see right there, uh, basically, you know, what would you panic if a Negro moved in next door? This idea that basically how these people, all right, he's, he's talking in Chicago. He's talking in Chicago how basically he's like, look, I make tons of money. He's like, I make $100,000 a year, and you can do that too if, unless you're lazy. He, he pretty much does that. He's like, and that's, that's equivalent to about a million dollars a year. He's like, and anybody could do it by not being lazy. Basically what he does is he goes into neighborhoods. Basically this guy goes into neighborhoods. <laughs> And all white neighborhoods, and he's like, hey, um, black people are gonna move in here. And then they're like, oh, no, black people are gonna move here. It's like, look, no, black people are gonna move in here. Your property values are gonna plummet, so you better sell to me now. And he might do something like have a black couple you know, walk around with a baby carriage or you know, attend an open house or, or come in with a moving truck. And then all of a sudden, people in the neighborhood would start to sell at a loss because they're afraid their property values are going to plummet even further. And then the blockbuster is going to turn around and sell it to a black family but charge a ton of money because he's like, oh, look, this is a white neighborhood. You're, you're paying for the privilege to live in here, that sort of thing. I would really love us to discuss that in some form or fashion. Um, you know, maybe on the discussion board, maybe in your response to this, maybe in your response you talk about how this kind of goes against the respectability angle. Uh, I know I give you a lot of things to watch and read, but I would really like you to read this one. Like, Really pay a lot of attention to this one. Uh, just for the sheer... I mean, this guy's an... He's an evil bastard. He—he is he, a bastard. Like, He's a rat bastard. No two words about it. But he's smart. Like, he's a sly bastard. Like, he's evil, but you recognize this guy's figured out how to profit off of, like, people's fears of racism. But in a larger sense, people are starting to realize that change is going to come. Change is going to come. Fight it all they want. It's clear the old racial system would no longer be challenged. Likewise, once we get into the 60s, there's a new youthful energy, and that's going to be reflected in the presidents of that time period. But we're going to get into that next week. So why don't you do the written response? Really read Confessions of a Blockbuster. It's only five pages. It's very easy to read. I, I of course, I don't love racism. I don't love segregation. But just reading how this, this evil genius, bastard asshole is making tons of money playing off of racial fears, and just seeing him talk so glib from this, it's it, it's remarkable. So for that, this is Dr. Tully for uh, History of 1945 to Present talking about the early Civil Rights Movement, and hopefully you uh, have a better understanding of it now. Alright, take care.